Well, exit poll data from Super Tuesday this past week showed that Donald Trump won the self-described born-again vote in most states. I think that data is what prompted NPR to do an interview with Al Mohler and Peter Werner. They participated. Mohler is a Reformed theologian, and he is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky. He is described in Time Magazine as the reigning intellectual of the evangelical movement in the U.S. Peter Weiner is senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He served in the Reagan and both Bush administrations, and he's been called one of the most influential reform-minded conservatives in the country. Okay, this is what he said. I'm reading from the transcript of this interview. When Bill Clinton was president, an awful lot of evangelical Christians ranked moral probity high on their list of leadership qualities, and they attacked Bill Clinton because they felt like he was a moral failure. And now you have Donald Trump, who is a moral degenerate, and a lot of the evangelicals are supporting him. By my definition, that's hypocrisy. This is what Al Mohler said. We have taken comfort in the fact that there have been millions and millions of us evangelicals in America. And a part of that evidence has been the last several election cycles with the evangelical vote being in the millions. And now we're having to face the fact that evidently theologically defined, defined by commitment to core evangelical values, There aren't so many million of us as we thought. At least from NPR's perspective, evangelicalism in America is having an identity crisis. Russell Moore is also part of that interview. He's president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And he says he doesn't want to be called an evangelical anymore, at least not during this election cycle. He simply wants to be known as a gospel Christian. So, it seems to me that this is a defining moment for us and for our team. Who are we? Are we what we say we are? Are we who we claim to be? I realize, as do these men, that we are not voting for a pastor. We're voting for a president. Other evangelical leaders are supportive. Trump, call him a visionary leader. So I'm asking you now, don't get stuck on the politics. Don't get mad at me if you love Trevor. Don't don't get stuck on that because that's not the point. And I don't want us to miss the point. The point is that what's going on in our country right now, it's not about politics. It's actually about the church. And this is a a time and a call for us to self-examination. Who are we as Jesus' church? Where do we put our hope? Where do we put our trust? Where do we put our faith? Are we God-trusters or are we merely pragmatists? Everything is really about the church. Truly, everything is about the church. Wherever the church finds expression throughout the world, because the church is God's instrument of change here in this world. And change comes as we spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby build the kingdom of God on earth while we wait for the perfect kingdom of heaven to come. 
The question then is always, what is God doing in the church? What is God allowing to happen here in America and in the cultures around the world to strengthen the church, to challenge the church, to awaken the church, to change the church? What is God up to? Politics? Politicians that our sovereign God sets on the throne? They are used by God to impact the culture that impacts the church. Who are we as a church in the midst of it? Jesus' challenge. In the passage we're going to read on this Monday of the week that changed the world. His challenge to those who would truly make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake is that we be who we say we are. That we be who he calls us to be. That's who we must be. If you have your Bibles open, I'm going to ask you to turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Mark. The 11th chapter, and, we've, and when you've found Mark chapter 11, I'm going to ask you to stand. And we will hear, read together, the word of the living God. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Then evening came. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, as always, we call on you now. We call on your aid, Spirit of God, to give us understanding of your truth, your word. We pray, Spirit, that you would join your your word and bring change in our lives. Help us look more and more like the people that you call us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we're continuing our series this morning that we call The Week That Changed the World because we're focusing on the very last week of the life of Jesus. The passage we've read this morning, it's Monday of that week. On Sunday, the day before, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's what we considered last week. And according to Matthew in his gospel, he says that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, that the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Great stirring on Palm Sunday. But this is Monday morning. Right? You know what 
Monday morning is like. It's the day to ease ourselves back into the week. No stirring, no shaking, right? Not so much. What Jesus did on Sunday, the stirring, the shaking, that was only the beginning. As Peter remembers what happened and tells Mark, and Mark tells it to us, Jesus was hungry that Monday morning as they started out on the two-mile journey back to Jerusalem. And so Jesus sees a fig tree in the distance, and he, he goes to see if it has any fruit on it. The tree doesn't have any fruit on it. It only has leaves, but Mark tells us that's not unusual because it wasn't the season for figs. So Jesus making sure that his disciples can hear him, curses the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, what do we do with this picture of Jesus? Why in the world would Jesus curse a fig tree for not having figs on it when he, the creator of heaven and earth, the trees, the field, the birds, the air, the sun, moon, stars, all those that that ordered the seasons, why would he curse a tree for not having fruit when he knows it's not the season for fruit? Some people work hard to come up with an explanation to make this a possibility that maybe the tree should have had figs on it. We do that, I think, to protect the character of Jesus, right? It would be embarrassing to us for Jesus not to know, it's wrong season, guys. And, and we can't have our Lord coming across as a petulant brat, using his power willy-nilly to curse a tree for not having figs when it's not supposed to have figs in the first place. That's completely out of his character. His disciples tried to use power that way once, James and John. They asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy this village? the village that would not accept Jesus. And Scripture says, Jesus rebuked, and this is not the way that Jesus acts. So cursing a fig tree for not having figs, it's not something Jesus would do. Why did he do it? Why did he want the disciples to hear? What's he trying to teach them? What dots is Jesus trying to connect in the minds of the disciples? Well, we know this. After Jesus set his face like flint, to go to Jerusalem, where he would die. Along the way to Jerusalem, he teaches the disciples this parable. He said, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fig on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. That parable Jesus taught the disciples. Maybe the disciples remembered Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 13. The Lord says, I will take away their harvest. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree. Their leaves will wither, and what I have given them, I will take from them. Perhaps they remembered Isaiah, chapter 5. I will sing a song for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard, 
on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now, I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge. It will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Jesus' moment with this fig tree is not about Jesus being hungry. It's not about Jesus finding food. This moment with the fig tree is about the people of God, about the nation of Israel. This moment is about the people of God not living and acting in faith. This is about God's people not doing what is just, not doing what is right. It's about God's people wanting to appear to be just, appear to be righteous. It's about them being full of green leaves, but bearing no fruit of either justice or righteousness. It's about what Paul writes of in 2 Timothy chapter 3. People who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Jesus has no interest in a form of godliness among his people. Jesus has no interest in his people going through the motions. Jesus has no interest in the labels we place upon ourselves. I'm an evangelical Christian. And all the characteristics that go along with that. Jesus is interested in true godliness. He's interested in our remaining in him, staying closely connected to him, so that we will bear fruit. Fruit that will remain. Fruit that's eternal. And people who believe the gospel and live by the gospel. People who make choices in accordance with the requirements of the gospel. People who act out of gospel love and gospel mercy and gospel compassion and gospel justice. That's fruit that remains. People who tell others the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that they too may experience the reality of eternity with Jesus. That's fruit that remains. And this is what Jesus requires of people who call themselves Christians. This is what is required of people who will make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake. And so Jesus will stir his people. Jesus will shake his people until we become who he requires us to be. And the curse on this fig tree makes that abundantly clear. Listen. This is the very last miracle that John records in his gospel. It's a great position, the last one. Oh, we we might think it ought to be other, but it's not. 
It isn't a miracle of bringing the dead back to life. It isn't a miracle of giving sight to the blind or hearing to the deaf. It's not a beautiful miracle like that at all. Jesus' last miracle is a miracle of death and destruction. Did we not say that this is the week that changed the world? Did we not say that in this week, Jesus is drawing the battle lines? The battle must be defined if the victory of the cross and the victory of the resurrection of Jesus is to have any real meaning or any real power in our lives. Look, I like Hallmark cards as much as the rest of you. I do. Don't you love the Hallmark cards at Christmas? Give you the warm fuzzies, Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the animals. It's so beautiful. Love the Hallmark cards at Easter. They're so bright and beautiful and full of joy and laden with Easter lilies. Who wants to spoil that for people? Who wants to spoil that for you? Who wants to take away your warm fuzzies at this time of year? I think the answer must be that Jesus does. I don't believe that the warm fuzzies are what Jesus is hoping to produce in this week that changed the world, in this week where he's shaking and stirring. Jesus will not have his people. He will not have you. He will not have me miss the point. The appearance of spiritual life is not what Jesus is after. Instead, Jesus is looking for true spiritual life and true spiritual health. And we know that's what Jesus is teaching through this miracle of fig tree because immediately Mark takes us to the temple. No longer is Jesus going to speak in parables. No longer is he going to act out a parable by, pass, uh, by cursing the fig tree. Jesus now stands in the temple, the dwelling place of God on earth. He stands among the people who claim to be God's people and have God as their father. And you know the story. We just read it. Jesus drives out from the temple those who were buying and selling. And he flipped over the, the table of the money changers. And he forbid anyone to carry merchandise of any kind through the temple courts. So again we ask, why this? Why now? Jesus did not see on this day anything that he had not seen every single time he visited the temple in the course of his life. It's not as if Jesus came on this Monday and said, oh my goodness, what's going on here? He had seen it all before. So why does he act this way now? Because this is the week to change the world, to draw the battle lines, to differentiate between truth and the lie that attempts to wrap itself in light and masquerade as truth. Now the mask must come off. Jesus speaks bold. He speaks true here. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Normally when we're talking about this passage, people focus on the thieves part, the robbing part. How the religious leaders robbed the people who came to the temple. How they charged them exorbitant exchange rates to turn their money into temple money that had to be used to buy the animals in the temple to make the sacrifices that were required of them. Yes, they were robbing The people. They were robbing the Gentiles. All this took place in the court of the Gentiles, and that's the only place Gentiles could go. 
They weren't allowed to go to any other part of the temple. And so the religious leaders stole away from them their place of quiet worship. They turned into a loud and noisy and bustling bazaar and market. They were robbing the people, oppressing them through this system. There's no justice in it. There's only taking advantage of those who have come to truly worship. And Jesus will have none of it. All that's true. But Jesus' emphasis here is is not on the robbers, it's on the den. Jesus says, you have turned the temple into a den. In Scripture, den or, or cave, it's a place of refuge. So what Jesus is saying here really is that you have taken this temple of God and turned it into a place of refuge, a, a cover-up, a place where religious thieves can hide. They robbed the poor in the temple, all the while enjoying the safe refuge of the temple and the position they had there and the power they had there. While they were robbing the people, they said, oh, we speak for God. This, this is the way God wants it to be. Don't ask any questions. Just do it. John Calvin says, For as robbers in their dens sin with greater hardihood, because they trust that they will escape punishment, so by means of a false covering of godliness, hypocrites grow more bold, so that they almost hope to deceive God. Can you imagine how Jesus felt in this moment? He sees thousands upon thousands of people who have come to the temple to worship, come from around the world. People whose spiritual care was entrusted to these religious leaders. It's like calling a proven, convicted pedophile, saying, here, babysit my children. It's like calling a convicted rapist and saying, hey, take my daughter to the senior prom. I know I'm not being very polite in my language. But neither is Jesus being polite here. Because these religious leaders were molesting God's people. Spiritually raping them. All the while saying, this is God's system. This is the way God wants it to be. With green leaf words that made them appear to be those who loved God, to be those who lived for God. Is it any wonder then that Jesus drives them out of the temple, that Jesus violently condemns hypocrisy here, exposing the injustice of the people from whom the God of justice requires justice for all people, flipping over their tables, driving them out of the temple. They cannot hide from God Neither can we. I love, love how all Scripture works together. Just weaves together. The Westminster Confession of Faith calls it the consent of all its parts. All Scripture works together. And here's what I love. Fig leaves were mentioned in Scripture long before Jesus cursed this fig tree. Long before Jesus spoke of the fig tree through the prophet Isaiah and the prophet uh, Jeremiah. 
We can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, beginning of human history, Genesis chapter 3, back to the very first sin. And what was the very first act that these newly initiated sinners, Adam and Eve, did after their sin? What's the first thing they did? Scripture tells us. They took fig leaves and they sewed them together to cover themselves. That's what sin does. It makes you want to hide. It makes you ashamed. When you're not real, you want to cover up. When you're not the people that God calls us to be, we want to hide up. We need fig leaves to cover ourselves, don't we? We need a den in which we can hide. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. Sin is not being who He's called us to be. In fact, sin is being other than He calls us to be. And when we are other than we are supposed to be, what do we want to do? We want to run for cover, find a fig leaf, find a den in which to hide, to protect us from the view of God. But fig leaves can't protect us from the view of God. And the religious veneer of of temple walls can't hide hypocrites from Jesus. What does Jesus do? He withers the fig tree. And he drives them out of the temple where they're hiding. He will have us to be who he has called us to be. No hiding. Now we need some good news, don't we? Yeah, we need some good news. I took the warm fuzzies away. Here's the good news. Jesus came to take away our shame so that we can lay aside those fig leaves and stop hiding. Romans chapter 10 verse 11 says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Isn't that good news? No more shame. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, that's why this is the week that changed the world. Why the battle lines had to be drawn. If our hiding is not exposed, if our shame is not revealed, then Jesus taking shame for us won't have any meaning to us. We won't have any desire for Jesus and what he offers to us. That's really the glory of what Jesus is doing here in the temple. We call what he did this day, and and I'm almost finished, so stay with me. What we call on this Monday, we refer to it as the cleansing of the temple. as, As if Jesus was fixing up the temple. As if Jesus was cleaning the temple... So that it could continue to be used for that for which God established it, right? He's cleaning the temple, making it the way it's supposed to be. Really? No, not at all. This is Monday. On Friday afternoon, as, Jesus, as soon as Jesus says the words, it is finished. As soon as Jesus commits his spirit into the hands of his father, the temple will no longer be necessary. Forgiveness of sins will no longer be found through the sacrificial system of the temple. It will be found only in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. And the Jew says, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body, his own death. Jesus alone has the power to forgive sins and take away shame. Why hide? Scripture tells us that we, you and I, are now the temple of God. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Jesus' passion for the purity of the temple, that's you and me now, is no less than it was when he cleared the temple on that Monday of the week that changed the world. Jesus will have us be who he has called us to be. The cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple should dramatically remind us how serious Jesus is about this. In the final exit poll, the final exit poll, the one that really matters for every one of us in this room, Jesus won't ask you what you called yourself. He'll ask you who you were. He'll ask you how you lived. He'll ask you where you placed your faith, where you placed your hope, where you placed your trust. Who are we? People of God. Church of God. Jesus would stir us to look for true spiritual health in our lives. Not just the appearance of it. Not just the trappings of it. We're surrounded by the trappings of religiosity. It's not the same. And if what's happening in our culture right now forces that upon us, if it exposes us for what we are, it's a good thing. It's an exciting thing. In times that we are living in that seem chaotic, when you hear people say over and over, we've never seen anything like this. This doesn't make sense to us. Then be certain. God is up to something. And he's up to something in his church. And I'm telling you, an identity crisis, if that's what we're having, can be a powerful tool for change. If we as American evangelical Christians are having an identity crisis, I say, bring it on. Take off the mask. Peel back the label. What's underneath? Where are the hearts of God's people? Where do we put our hope? Where do we put our trust? Why? Who should we be? What should we do as a church? Are we hiding? Only wearing a label. Or are we being the gospel-speaking, gospel-living, justice-seeking people that Jesus calls us to be? Is there gospel reality in us? And where is our fruit? The fruit that will remain. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, we would ask you to change us as we spend time looking together at the week that changed the world. Father, give us ever-increasing understanding of who you are and what you were doing in that week. Now as we've looked at your triumphal entry, now as we've looked at the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple, What is it that you would have us 
to learn? How is it that you would have us change? Not only as individuals, but as a church. Where we want to be real in our love for you. There's no power, there's no strength in the appearance of it. It doesn't do us any good to go through the motions if our hearts are not engaged. So Father, I pray now that you would help us to abide in Jesus, to stay close to him, as we've prayed already this morning. Commit ourselves to your word of truth. Commit ourselves to to prayer, seeking the spirit to join with the word and bring change in our hearts and our lives. Lord, not just for our sakes and not just for our own eternity, though that's so important to us. And though, Lord, every person in this room needs to question, ask themselves, what will happen to me when this life comes to an end? The good news is that if there's faith in you, our eternity is secure in a beautiful place with you. So help us do it, Lord, for our own sakes, but also for the sake of the world around us. They need to see reality. They need to see gospel reality in our lives. The world doesn't need to see, Lord, our hypocrites, our people going through the motions. That's certainly what appears to be happening in our culture, rightly or wrongly labeled. uh, It doesn't matter, Lord. Help us to be real to a watching world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.